Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Last week's study was verses 1 and 2 about the, the temple. Uh, this week we're going to read up to verse 14. And so let's begin where Joshua read for us earlier, Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now if anyone wants to harm them, with fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy They also have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of that great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these uh, two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. And an earthquake, 7,000 men were killed, And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Um, As you go back to verses 3 and 4, they're called the two witnesses. It gives us the time frame. And uh, we're, we're in Zechariah on Wednesday nights. When we did chapter four, this is a a fulfillment because in chapter four of Zechariah, it talks about the two olive trees that have an unlimited flow of oil that came in to these two beings. Here's a fulfillment of them right here where they're called in verse four, these are the two olive trees the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. Now, if you have a Bible like I do, it actually says Zechariah 4 because this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. The other thing that's important here, it gives gives us the time frame of the duration of their ministry. It says they will minister in verse 3 for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, we've mentioned Many different times, there's a different way of saying um, um, three and a half years. We know it's a seven-year period of time. 
We know that Daniel 9, verse 27 um, will be gone, but those that are left behind will immediately know who the Antichrist is because Daniel 9, 27 says, he, referring to the Antichrist, will make a covenant with many uh, for seven years. That's the time frame of the tribulation period. But then it says in the middle of that period of time, uh, he'll break that peace treaty. And this is where we're finding ourselves this morning. So 1,260 days is equivalent to 42 months. It's equivalent to times, times, and half a times. And here it's basically the first three and a half years. So the scenario would go something like this. I believe the Lord is coming soon. Don't you pray for that? (laughs) Even before the next 16 days would be fine with me, Daniel. (laughs) And um, so they're untouchable for 1,260 days. They are at the very beginning of the tribulation period, but it it tells us that... um, the one who comes out of the bottomless pit is actually gonna kill them. And the whole world rejoices. So I wanna point out their ministry lasts for 1,260 days or the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, who are they? Well, we know for sure one of them, of one of them because he's prophesied in the book of Malachi, as a matter of fact, It's the last two verses of the Old Testament. And I'll read them to you. It's Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Another way of saying the tribulation. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, this is a double prophecy. Here, it's referring to Elijah. But I'll show you when we talk about another person a little bit later where it's actually a double prophecy. I believe the other one, so we know for sure that one of these two witnesses spoken about here is Elijah. Then, I believe the other one is Moses. And the reason for that, and I won't... um, have you turn there, I'm quoting from Matthew 17, we'll be there a little bit later, uh, we call it uh, the transfiguration. So Matthew 17, verse one, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and they led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them and began talking to the Lord. And I believe because of this verse here that the other person that we have in view as the two witnesses, one is Elijah for sure. I think the evidence points to Moses not just because of this verse, but if you're back in chapter 11, you notice there's no rain that falls for three and a half years? Well, Elijah did that before, and we'll be going back there shortly. 
But it also talks about water being turned into blood. And what's the first thing that you think of? I think of Charlton Heston myself, but. <laughs> but, you know, Aaron, strike out your rod, and he touches the Nile, and it becomes blood. So the association there and the, and the, the deeds that they do, I, my own personal conviction is that the two witnesses, one we know for sure is Elijah, but I believe the other one is Moses. Now, something strange happened to me this week as I read this, and I thought Moses and how he died, and, and um, you know, he was on Mount Nebo. He was allowed to look in, but he wasn't allowed to um, enter into the promised land. Turn with me to Jude. It's the book before the book of Revelation. And I think I discovered something. I've never read it in a commentary before. I've never heard anybody even try to explain what this was all about. But I think I know. Do I have your curiosity yet? (laughs) I'm referring to Jude, verse 9, okay? And it tells us this. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when they disputed about the body of Moses. Can I just stop there and try to give you some sort of feeling of what I think is taking place here? They're contending. Everybody know what contending is? And it says they're disputing. Uh, They're playing a a tug of war here. And um, they're arguing over the body of Moses. And I thought to myself, What's this all about? Why are they arguing? Why are they contending? Why does the devil want Moses' body? Remember, when he died, it says the Lord buried Moses. For some reason, the devil wanted Moses' body. Why? My answer is I think it has something to do with the two witnesses. That's what I think. And um, what would he do with it? Who knows? I don't know. A lot, something like this raises more questions than it gives answers. But I actually think probably the reason they were disputing over it is that the devil wanted it. Um, because did not he quote scripture to Jesus? And does not he know the scriptures? Yeah. And, uh, and knowing that, I think you get my point that the reason for this dispute and contention over Moses' body is not explained to us. But when I think it through, these are the ones that God is going to use in judgment during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. All right. This morning I would like to look at three Old Testament prophets. Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Let's start with Elijah, and I'm gonna have you go back to um, 1 Kings chapter 17. So let's make our way back there. 1 Kings 17, verse one. Elijah is talking to Ahab And we read in verse one, and Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, 
as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there's not going to be any dew or rain these years except at my word. Now, it says years here, but both Jesus and James tell us that it was exactly a three and a half year period of time. So, um, I find it interesting because that's no rain in the first three and a half years. That makes me go back to this verse right here where we're introduced to Elijah and it didn't rain for the next three and a half years. In chapter 18, what had happened is Ahab had married Jezebel. What Jezebel did is she introduced the worship of Baal to Israel. And so much so that in chapter 18, um, it has influenced Israel to the point that there's 450 prophets of Baal and um, Elijah actually believes he's the only one left, even though we're gonna find out later that's not the case. But in his mind, he was the only prophet of the Lord that was still live and existing. So in chapter 18, um, call it what you want, a showdown, a challenge. Elijah goes out and he says, I challenge the 450 prophets of Baal to meet me on top of Mount Carmel. And that's the challenge laid out. And, and um, they show up. I'm going to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Let's go to, um, well, I'm going to put something on the screen while I'm reading. But please follow along with me. I'm taking you to the Mount Car- top of Mount Carmel right now. And what you're looking at is the valley of where the Battle of Armageddon is going to um, take place. I believe this is what I call an A spot. And um, look at it now, and I'll come back to you and explain why I believe it's an A spot. Okay? So where are we now? We're, oh, outside of Haifa, uh, going east. Uh, just on, if you look straight across, you would be looking at Nazareth, where the, the, the hills are. And then we have this valley in between where one day the Battle of Armageddon will take place. Let's go back to chapter 18 and beginning with verse 20. Follow along and with me. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elisha came to the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord's God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left of the prophets of the Lord. So he really thinks he's the only one. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, Uh, Don't put any fire under it. And then I'll prepare another bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
So all the people answered and said, it's well spoken, good idea. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself and prepare it at first, uh, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but don't put any fire under it. And so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. So they leapt up on the altar and that they had made. And so at noon, uh, Elijah's watching this all morning, that Elijah began to mock them and said, maybe you guys need to cry a little bit louder to your God. Maybe he's meditating or maybe he's busy. I'll let you translate that for yourself. Or maybe he's on a journey or maybe he's taking a nap and you guys need to wake him up. And so they cried and they cut themselves, as was their custom. And uh, so just imagine this, they're jumping up and down, nothing's happening. They cut themselves, blood's coming out now, they're getting really Pentecostal about this whole thing. And, um, and blood gushes out of them, and it was so when midday was past that they prophesied until the time of the, of the offering of the evening sacrifice. This thing's going on all day long. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to the people, come on over here. So the people came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones he built an altar, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two sheaves of seed and he put the wood on in order. He cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill now four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and it also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. Okay, in men's prayer yesterday, one of the guys was commenting on this verse as we were were talking about prayer. And uh, his observation was, it wasn't what these other guys were doing all day long. Um, It's a very short prayer. And it was directed very simply. It's only two, um, two or three sentences long. And it was a very, very simple prayer. No flash, no pomp. Lord, if you're God, then answer by fire. Then, verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stone and the dust, licked up the water 
that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord is God. And then Elijah said to them, I want you to seize these prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he executed them there. Can I have your attention back at the screen? If you look to the far right on the top, it says Brook Kishon. And the reason I believe that when we go to Israel and we go to this place, there's this marvelous uh, vantage point, I always make a point that crick still exists to this day. This is a modern picture. And this goes way back to um, Elijah's time when he challenged the 400 prophets of Baal. Now, if you would look the other direction, you would see from Mount Carmel, you would see the Mediterranean Sea. And it's at this point in the rest of the chapter is that he prays for rain. The three and a half years has gone by. He's pretty much taken care of the false prophets of Baal. And so now he begins to pray. So if you're looking that way, you can see all the way over to Nazareth, but from the same vantage point, if you look that way, if you look towards the west, you will see the Mediterranean. And he prayed uh, seven times, and nothing was happening. He had a guy looking out for him. But the seventh time, he says, you know what? I see this little hand forming like a cloud. And Elijah says, that's it. Let's get out of here, because it's going to rain. And it rained. And um, he had this, what I like to call this, uh, from 41 to 46, God sends the rain as a result when he told Ahab, listen, Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. And now that he's killed the 450 prophets of Baal, he asked the Lord for rain. And when he saw that little hand cloud, he knew rain was on its way. Now, in chapter 19, um, Elisha, um, Elijah, I should say, he comes from, let's go to chapter 19. Let me draw your attention to uh, verses 1 through 4. Jezebel hears about this. And as a result, you know, he's, this has to be one of the most incredible days in Elijah's life. I call an experience like this a mountaintop experience. Let's face it, calling fire out of heaven, that's pretty dramatic. And knowing that you're the one who prayed the prayer. So if, if I'm Elijah, um, he's having a mountaintop experience. Now, in verse 19, the first four verses, Jezebel hears about it. Remember, she's the one responsible for bringing Baal worship into Israel. Verse one, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, 
and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. He says, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. All right. Um, I want to get personal and practical at this point here. Because one day, you can be on top of a mountain and sailing smooth and everything is fine. You're seeing the hand of the Lord and all these wonderful things happen and you're having a mountaintop experience. And then the very next day, you could go from that experience to wishing you wanted to die, full of fear from this woman who's threatening him. This is all in two days' time. So mountaintop experience here, wanting to die the next day, I mean, that's a pretty broad emotional range, wouldn't you agree? And so, but I bring it up because this is the reality of the Christian life. Some people think you're supposed to be happy, clappy all the time. My friends, that's just not the case, especially in these days. And one day you can be having that mountaintop experience like Elijah, and the very next day you fall into, in this case, we're going to find out it's self-pity, and you're in your cave, your little hole there where you escape to, and you literally want to die. Notice how the Lord deals with Elijah. Um, let's pick it up in verse 9. Um, it says that Elijah went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts of the children of Israel. And they've forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I'm the only guy left, and they want to kill me. And then he said, go out. This is the Lord speaking to him. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind tore into the mountain, broke the rocks in pieces, before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is the second time he asks the question. But now he's at least outside, he's coming out of uh, his self-pityness, but he's not quite there yet. So he says, "What, what, what are you doing here, Elijah, the second time? And what does he do? He repeats the same old, same old. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. Ah, me, I'm the only one left. And they seek to take my life. Word for word. And here's the Lord, fire, earthquakes, name it, and he's doing it. 
And the only thing he responded to was that still small voice which probably comforted him enough to at least come out of his cave a little bit. Now, the question though is, what are you doing here? And he really doesn't have an answer for that. Yesterday, after Ben's prayer, it's good to have Paul back. He was out for a couple of weeks. Um, after Ben's prayer, Paul Mall comes up to me. He says, Dwight, I want you to put this in your Bible study tomorrow. And I said, I said, you want me to put what into my Bible study tomorrow? He said, write this down. If you're sitting on the edge, you're taking up too much space. That's what he wanted. And I said, what's that supposed to mean? In other words, stop sitting around and get busy. That was his point. And I thought, there's no way, I can, there's no way I'm going to find that. I've, uh, he left, and I'm rolling my eyes like, this isn't going to happen at all. <laughs> but actually, it works out perfectly because this is exactly what the Lord is telling Elijah to do. What are you doing? Nothing. Sitting around on the edge. And this is, what, this is how the Lord, he doesn't comfort him. No, he tells him to get busy. Look at verse 15. Elijah, get back to work. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nishai, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Maholai, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael will, um, will kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, uh, will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Get off the pity party, Elijah. You're not the only one. I have 7,000 guys that you don't even know about. In the meantime, stop the pity party, get your eyes off yourself, and get back to work. And so he does. And this is where we're introduced now, um, and we have a transition um, from Elijah to Elisha. By the way, I should make this point. I'm only laying the foundation for the application of the study. But we gotta go through these so that we can connect the dots. In verse 19, we're introduced to Elisha. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and he was plowing 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th, and then Elijah passed by him, and he threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother. Now the idea of the mantle is he's passing the mantle on as the prophet of the main prophet of the Lord. He said, let me go say goodbye to mom and dad and I'll follow you. And he said, go back then. For what have, what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, uh, slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate and then he arose and Elijah and Elijah and served him. 
So we're having a transition uh, in these verses where we find this anointing to be able to call fire out of the air. And now he's passing um, the mantle on to Elisha. Now, I need to have you turn to the Second Kings chapter 2, which is only a couple pages away. Second Kings chapter 2. And I want to read the first 15 verses here. It's when Elijah is taken bodily into heaven. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me unto Bethel. And Elijah says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came to Elijah and he said to him, did you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, yeah, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And some of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. And again he says, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And there 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So this is um, uh, down towards Jericho where the Jordan is very close to there. And Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Is everybody with me? Takes his mantle off, rolls it up, hits uh, the Jordan, waters part. Just like um, when they were delivered out of uh, Egypt. And it happened um, when the, in verse nine, when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elijah, ask, what can I do for you before I'm taking away from you? And Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be. Then it happened. As they continued and talked, suddenly a chariot appeared with horses of fire, separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in pieces. He also took up the mantle 
of Elijah. So what's left behind was the mantle that Elijah always wore. That comes falling back down to the ground. And Elisha picks, Elisha picks it up and went back and stood by the banks of the Jordan. And then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen and struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elijah crossed over. This next verse is a very important verse in our study this morning. Verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah now rests on Elijah. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground uh, before him. Now, let me just talk a little bit about a double portion. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 21, um, Elisha's request, I want double what you got. It's a hard saying, but if you see me getting taken up today, then it's gonna be answered. I'm quoting Deuteronomy 21, 17. Elisha sought neither wealth, nor position, nor worldly power, nor a share in those advantages of which he had turned his back forever when he said farewell to home and his friends and worldly prospects. And Elijah said, I pray that you give me a double portion of the spirit that's upon you. That's what I want. What did Elijah mean by this request? He was asking that he might be considered as Elijah's oldest son, uh, the heir to his spirit, the successor to his work. There's a passage in the law of Moses that clearly proves that the double portion was the right of the firstborn. If you were a Jewish man and your first son, when he died and the inheritance was divided, the oldest son got twice as much as everybody else. And um, basically, Elisha is looking to Elijah as a father figure, and the reason for the double portion is, that's the right. I have the right. You're my, I look at you as my father, therefore I went on double portion. So the main point that I want to make in the study thus far is here in verse 15, the spirit of Elijah is now on Elisha. And Elijah being taken bodily into heaven, to me, is an Old Testament picture of the rapture of the church. Very similar to Enoch back in uh, Genesis, where it says Enoch walked with God and he was not, because God took him bodily into heaven. And the same thing happened here. Here we have Elijah bodily being taken up into heaven. All right, we've talked about Elijah. We've talked about Elisha. Now I want to take a look at John the Baptist. So let's turn to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Remember, I quoted this earlier and said this, these last two verses in the Old Testament refer to Elijah, and that's how we know for sure that Elijah is one of the two witnesses. Well, 
it gets a little bit more complicated than that because this is a what I call a double prophecy. So let's read verses five and six, Malachi four. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is a tribulation, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their father lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. End of Old Testament. Let's go to Luke chapter one, New Testament. This is where it gets interesting for me. John the Baptist's father is Zacharias. Um, he would, he was a Levite, and they sort of worked in the temple on a rotating basis. And every so often, uh, different ones would come in. In this case, his responsibility was uh, keeping um, the incense going. And so let's pick it up in verse 11. He's in the temple. He's doing his routine. And it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Appeared to who? John the Baptist's father. Standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And then we read these verses. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, notice, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You guys catching what's going on here? We have Elijah with a special anointing. That special anointing is passed on to Elisha. And now we read in Malachi that clearly about Elijah turning the hearts of the pe- children back to their father. But now the angel is telling John's father, no, this is actually the spirit, the same spirit that was on Elijah, Elisha, is now gonna be on John the Baptist. And that's what's being said here. That's why Malachi chapter four is a double prophecy. Both people are in view here. John the Baptist and Elijah. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11 and drive the point even more home. Matthew 11, and we're looking at verses seven through 15. Matthew eleven seven, and they, de- and they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, John the Baptist, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, that's like saying a wimp. Remember Elisha was working with 12 yoke of, of oxen? You gotta be a big guy, strong guy. 
And he says, what'd you go out to see John Baptist for? Some wimpy guy that gets bent um, whichever way the wind is blowing? Nope. But what did you see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothings are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is the one of whom it is written, and... um, when we were back in Malachi, I should have read Malachi chapter three, verse one, because that's a prophecy about John the Baptist. I'll quote it for you here because this is where we read it. Verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Cross-reference, Malachi chapter three, verse one. Clearly a prophecy of John the Baptist. Verse 11. Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament Jewish prophets. All right. There will be Jews that will reign in the kingdom age. And they will have responsibilities. But what it means here, but even the least, and the least here is a reference to when the gospel was preached and a person accepts Christ and they're born again, they're the bride of Christ. John the Baptist said of himself, I'm just a friend of the groom. I'm not the bride. So what's being stated here is that the position during the millennial reign is greater for the church than it is for the nation of Israel, and that's what is being meant here. Um, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from that day, and then from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law and prophets until John. Now catch this, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Now just let this sink in for a second. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you guys could wrap your head around this, John the Baptist is really Elijah. Now he goes future tense who is to come. Well, He's also past tense because he's the one who was caught up in the heaven and he's the one who said it's not gonna rain. So he was back there then and now the same spirit, here's one of my main points of the study, is that the same spirit that was on Elijah was on Elisha and it's it's even more identified as Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is really Elijah who is still to come future tense. The question is, where future tense? Well, Revelation chapter 11, one of the two witnesses. And that's uh, what we have here. So in Matthew 17, let's turn over there. And we'll see this um, even more clearly. Jesus will make this distinction. This is a Mount of Transfiguration, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, 
brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we can uh, make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I, I chuckle when I read this because this is Peter being Peter. He doesn't know what to say, but that doesn't stop Peter from talking. <laughs> and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For those maybe watching or um, have heard of Jesus only people, those who don't hold to the Trinity, here's, here's one of those slam dunk verses that you can give to them. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, but the father interrupts Peter in his speaking. And he says, Moses isn't important. Elijah isn't important. Peter, I want you to listen to my beloved son. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them. He said, arise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down the mountain, uh, Jesus commanded them saying, the vision Uh, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so the disciples asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, they're quoting Malachi chapter four, verse five, that last verse in the Old Testament. Why do they say that? Why do they say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answers the question and says to him, Elijah truly is coming first, and will restore all things. That's pointing us back to the book of Revelation where he's going to be in a process of dealing with um, the nation of Israel those first three and a half years. But then he says this, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is about to suffer at the same hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But it was Moses and Elijah that were there. And he says, Elijah has come. And they're gonna do to him, but it's really John the Baptist, what they're gonna do to me. And that's exactly what happened. John the Baptist was beheaded. And he was killed. So what we have, let's go back and we'll begin to wind this up this morning. Um... We're doing really good. We've made it through two verses. <laughs> um, I want to look at verses 7 through 12. When the two witnesses had finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit makes war against them and overcomes them and kills them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days. Now this is important. For three and a half days. And not allow 
their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send presents to one another, like Christmas time, because these two prophets tormented uh, those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so um, what have they been doing for the last three and a half years, along with 144,000? They were preaching the gospel. And some responded, some didn't. And now, as they preached the gospel, Jesus came and he died. He was crucified, he was buried. And after three days, my personal conviction is, it was three and a half days, is that he rose from the dead. That was their message. So now, Moses and Elijah are killed. They're out in the open. Everybody can see them. We talked just a couple weeks ago about the technology that's coming out that's so sophisticated that every person will have their own personal device to watch real live time anywhere in the world. We have the technology today to do that, and it's ongoing. So these scriptures really couldn't have been fulfilled, let's say, 50 years ago. Um, can today the whole world is watching this happen watching what happened well we read in verse 11 and it's at this point that I want to share the gospel because that's what they were doing and what we're about to read next is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ now after three and a half days the breath of life from God entered them they stood on their feet Great fear fell on those who saw them, and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Haven't we read that earlier in the book of Revelation? Remember chapter four, verse one to John? John, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Now, when did they see them go into heaven? Oh, after three and a half days. And um, by the way, this is the second time Elijah is taken into heaven. Second time. First time he was alive. Second time he's dead. So he went there twice. And we find that as the world is watching this, they have to be thinking in the back of their heads, that's what these guys have been saying for the last three and a half years, telling us about Jesus being the Messiah and that he was killed But the Lord brought him back to life and rose from the dead. That was their message. And now we got a picture of it. And um, we read after that, um, they have this this great earthquake. And um, it says, this is the second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The last verse chapter that we will look at this morning is James chapter 5 and we'll close with with James this morning and there's a reason I want to close well there's actually two reasons I want to close with, with this the first one is we know that it's we know it's late and there isn't a person here that loves the Lord and we say like Peter Lord if I had a choice I'd rather be with you but if you think it's necessary for me to be here for all, fine. I can live with that. But the idea is, I want out. 
okay? I want out. I want a new body. All the above. So at verse 7 of chapter 5, James is giving an exhortation to be patient. He says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. So you be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We're talking pre-trib scriptures here. You can't have the Antichrist coming after that. They were expecting him then. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Well, if it was at hand then, how much closer is it now? Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the uh, perseverance of Job. Okay, here's a whole book about his whole, whole life was a bad day, okay? Not just one day, his whole life was a bad day. And, and seeing the end and intended by the Lord, that the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, neither by earth or by heaven. Now, we're not talking vulgarity here. We're talking about taking an oath, saying don't do it unless you can't follow through with it. Do not swear neither by heaven or earth or any oath, but just let your yes be yes and let your no be no at that, lest you fall into judgment. Verse 13, if any among you is suffering, let him pray. Is any cheerful, let him sing. Is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them in oil in the name of the Lord. Churches have to stay open. They have to stay open because you can't lay hands on people that aren't there. And the power of prayer will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Now, you say, okay, some people can do that. They have the faith to do that and the Lord actually heals people. I don't know if I have that kind of faith. I'm just an ordinary guy, a natural man. And that's the reason we're closing this study with the way we are right now. Verse 16, confess your trespasses one to another, pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now we're back with Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Can we just stop for a second and let that sink in? You know what it says? It says Elijah is no different than you are. Elijah is no different than I am. He's an ordinary man. So when we read about these mountaintop experiences and all the miracles that were done, a man of faith and a man who prays um, is just like Elijah, who was, had the spirit of um, John, the same spirit as John the Baptist. Moses, by the way, was called the humblest man in the world. John the Baptist was called the greatest man in the world because of the spirit that dwelt on them. 
But here, and the reason I want to close up with this, is that I want you to know the potential that you have as ordinary Christians. Because what can we do unless the Lord does it? Nothing. The Lord says, without me, you can do nothing. So what's needed? Well, what's needed is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God resting upon you. Well, I don't think I have the, the, wow, the, the, the spirit of Elijah. No, the Bible says that the Lord gives gifts as he wills, the Holy Spirit. You don't get to pick and choose. Every Christian who's born again has a gift. And as Paul Maul would say, get off the edge. <laughs> Quit sitting around. Exercise the gift that you have. And um, make it um, and, and know that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens rained, and the earth produced fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, can we just stop here for a second and again make it personal? With a a group this size, everybody knows somebody who's wandered from the truth. Get an amen there? I, I I know lots of them. And so now we're getting exhorted again as we conclude our Bible study this morning. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and then someone turns him back, in other words, he goes out of his way to say, do you know how late it is? That's what we should be saying. You, you want to really play Russian roulette with your soul? Do you really want to enter into the seven-year period of time that's hell on earth? You better, you better rethink that. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save a soul. Save a soul from where? Let's be, let's be blunt. From eternal damnation. From hell. Dwight, do you really believe that? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus says so. To me, in my mind, I can't wrap my head around eternal punishment. But I, I'm not going to duck it. I'm not going to tell you it's not there. This is not a gray area. This is black and white. There is a heaven. There is a hell, and both are eternal. The Bible tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And anybody foolish enough not to accept the free gift that has been given to us when Jesus took my sin, and then he gave me his righteousness. He took your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. And he's also given us a commission. And those who are aware Um, and you are used to turn a person back to where he should be with his walk with the Lord, a soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we make our way through our study in Revelation, talk about uh, these three men this morning in a mighty way that you use them. Lord, help us redeem the time and help us understand the lateness of the hour and um, help us when we have a mountaintop experience one day and, and end up in a cave of self-pity the next day, Lord, um, bring us out and help us get our eyes off ourselves and just be about our Father's business 
And we find when we get our eyes off ourselves and put them upon you, um, whatever difficulty or self-pity we were going through, it, everything changes. And for that, we're grateful. So bless your word to the people today. In Jesus' name, amen.